Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. I'm your host this week, David Gibney, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts. Uh, we have Claire O'Connor and Michelle Byrne. Uh, the Week at Work is part of Left Block, which is an alternative media and a political education project. And if you want to support us, you can go to leftblock.ie um, or pa- patreon.com forward slash leftblock. Without further ado, I'm going to get straight into it. Um, there's obviously been one uh, major story over the last week, which is... Um, translated into a number of different stories and I know Claire you were on the ground during the incident that took place last Thursday with the horrific um, knife attack that took place on Parnell Square. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about what has happened in that story? Yeah I suppose I won't go into I don't want to go into too much actual detail I think there's been loads in the papers and you know we were we were at the Stardust my mum was about to testify Uh, we were standing outside and, you know, what looked like kind of a fight across the road um, was clear there was two adults and a lot of kids uh, within a split second. Someone that was a woman that was standing behind beside us, a family that was walking past to start to scream. He's stabbing the kids and her husband started to run. And then Siobhan that was with us ran. I ran. My mom ran. We, it, it was just I don't think anybody really understood what was happening. It was just a panic. Um, and then, yeah, multiple people, including Siobhan, that was with us who's a 60 year old woman just absolutely dived on him but da- you know Warren Dunning who had already taken him down Kyle Benicio had was was coming at this stage uh it was bedlam so you know a lot of people tried to disarm him took the knife off him and then a couple of us me, myself an older woman uh I just have these faces you know my memories are pretty kind of blotchy but of just trying to grab kids and get kids out of the way because there were still a lot of kids there were, there were like a lot of kids there and um mm. You know, we could see very clearly what, what was happening. I don't won't go into detail because it just is so graphic, but we could see very clearly what he was doing as we were running across the road. It was just absolutely frenzied. But I suppose in that, and everybody, you know, the details are out there, the details are in the paper. The fact that so far everybody has survived is an absolute miracle. And I think what happened later on in the night, which I know we probably we will talk about, distracts from the fact that one person did a really horrific thing, like the most horrific. I don't, there's just, it's just, mm. there is nothing more violent. And when it comes to children, like it's just, and school children lining up, believe it. Like it's, yeah. it is as bad as it gets, I think. Yeah. And so it's terrifying for people because it just feels so random. But um, for me, what I kept holding on to was the fact that from the carer, the woman who put her body on the line and is now fighting for her life in hospital, to everybody that intervened mm. from trying to disarm him to get the kids out of the way to protect his body so that nobody else ended up with their life ruined if you know potentially say on a manslaughter charge you know from stopping people taking photos from ringing the guards from the nurse that stopped to do chest compressions on the little girl who is fighting for her life as well um a little five-year-old girl who i think most people left thinking you know had already been lost like that's how bad it was but actually one person did a horrific thing and a lot of people came together in collective action and community and solidarity. And that is that is most people like that is most mm. people. That's what I'm holding on to. And that's what it is such a pity that things escalated in the way they did. And it was exploited in the way it, it, it was, because first of all, people like. Well, we'll get to that. It's, it's just there's so much to that. There's so many layers to what happened that night. But I just think that 
for me, what I'm focusing on is the fact that actually the vast majority of people will step in to protect each other and to work together and are thoroughly decent. And I think that we can't but just hold on to that because otherwise, you know, I don't know what we do. Yeah, that 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 struck me as well. Um, I I I'd just been with you and your mom and Siobhan, uh, and I'd gone the opposite way down the road um, to to meet somebody for lunch. And when I was coming back up, the guards grabbed me and threw me backwards. Um, I didn't know anything had happened, but it obviously just happened just slightly before or whatever. And then I saw, I was wondering what was happening, but they um, they hadn't sealed off the area at this stage. They were another of, number of guards came down and started pushing everybody back down and then i realized this is this is very very serious something's up here so um but it was like as you say the the reaction of so many people which is so encouraging that the, the, at a time like that it's very easy to run to get scared run and it's if you know the whole flight or flight thing um but the positive thing is uh, how everybody came together to try and do what they could. And I know people are saying, you know, oh, you did what we did. what anyone would have done that. Not everyone would. It takes courage to do something like that. So I think it needs to be applauded. Everybody needs to be applauded. And the fact that there's this instinct, and we were tweeting about this yesterday or the other day, there's this instinct to have one hero, one person who saved the day when in reality, a situation like that requires for it to have a positive outcome, it requires multiple people to intervene and to do what was done. So, yeah, it, it is a positive one. Claire, you want in? I think as well. So I all, I think there's another layer in this and that because it was exploited and used in such a racist way that so many people wanted to really share the story of a migrant man who had stepped in and put, you know, put himself on the line. So I think that's why... Uh, that's why that kind of story, I think, really rose in prominence at the start, because it's everybody's so angry about how it was exploited. And it's like, you know, that man was so brave, you know what I mean? Was mm. So instrumental in what happened. Um, and there's just there's so many bad faith actors at the minute trying to manipulate this and exploit it and drive fear and division and hatred. And actually, again, it's just like we need to really we can't even feed into that. We can't even respond to it. We We need to actually just focus on community and collective action and and the goodness of people you know again when we come together i feel a hell of a lot better knowing that there are lots of people who will respond in that way than having to rely on maybe one person that mm. might you know what i mean it's, it's it's actually much more hopeful knowing that a huge amount of people will help will come together in very different ways all doing different things but i do think that um how it was exploited like you said we so we we were obviously there for a while and then we had to go back into the inquest and that had to be shut down. And then we had to leave, say, out the front of the rotunda. By the time we got down the end of Parnell Square, uh, kind of at the ambassador, it had been taped off. There was a lot of parents there really worried and upset and wanting to get up and get their kids out of the school. And um, they were in mixed in there as well. I recognised some far right agitators already there live stream and hurling abuse at the guards, hurling abuse at some mainstream media that were there. And it was like, it was so obvious from very early on that this was going to, something bad was going to come with this. That this was mm. like, obviously I had absolutely no idea what would have happened, like what happened on Friday night, but it was obvious it was going to be exploited. So th there wasn't a massive guard of presence down there to close those roads off. And I think 
it looked like a bit of a free for all. And then people were kind of online encouraging more people to come down. And that's when the, the Telegram account started and they calling for a protest. And I mean, I was I was I was still and I was talking to you. I was still I was in a shock like I wasn't mm. following a lot of what was going on. So people kept sending me videos, but I just didn't have the head to be engaging with it. But as I was starting to kind of come around that night and I'm watching some of them and it, it, I'm, I think because we're still, I know myself, I can only talk about myself because I was still in shock. You're looking at these things and you're thinking this can't possibly be real. Like this isn't mm. actually happening. And to think how quickly everything can kind of fall apart. Like that's what happened. Like the city was lost that, you know, within a couple of hours, people, I know people who were trapped in their colleges. So many people from ethnic minorities who literally could not leave. They were trapped in the buildings. They were trapped in work. Like the fear is just, I can't, I can't even imagine. None of us can actually imagine as bad as we know it was. We can't actually imagine how bad it was. Yeah. I, I have a friend who was working in the rotunda. They were sent home, uh, the nurses, um, as soon as it all kicked off, which, you know, the message I got was that she was safe, you know, and that that that's just a mental scenario to be in that a, a midwife is, you know, notifying people that I managed to get home safely. And at the same time, you see a tweet going up on Twitter saying, uh, please, if you're pregnant or you've an emergency, don't come into the rotunda like these. The very nurses who ran. So one of the little girls, Warren Dunner, whose daughter, she's 11 years old, ran to the front of the rotunda and went in screaming that they needed doctors and nurses. There's a man stabbing kids through the back of the pillar rooms. So when we were still there, doctors and nurses start running onto the street, not in um, not from like ambulances. Like they obviously came really quick as well. But pe- people came from everywhere when they heard what was happening. So the very doctors and nurses, like the amount of people that in intervened the man the nurse who did chest compressions on this little girl until the paramedics came he's not irish either do you know what i mean like it's mm. the it's it's sickening to think that so many of the people that intervened and so many of the people that rushed to help were then scared and actually feared mm. for their own lives that night and i think that's i think what really i think upsets people the most yeah it's it's oh, it, but the, the the frustrating thing is we will we'll talk about the riots and the the like immediately again sealed off at the bottom of the road when the guards came back with the um, tape um, immediately there were racist comments and uh, comments being made towards anyone that looked foreign down there Um, because I was there I was witnessing what was going on and at this stage nobody knew what was going on like we did we hadn't been informed of what was happening at the top of the street but um, and of course, the the incident happened right outside my workplace. So I was able to ring some of the people who were in work and were on the steps. I could see them on the steps, but I couldn't get up to them. And they were trying to fill me in on, on what they knew at that time. They still weren't clued in. But immediately, almost to, you know, within a minute of the place being sealed off, because I have a photograph of before and after they put up the seals, the, the, the Garda seals, immediately comments were being made to people at the bottom of the street. And you're just going, this is going to blow up. This this is not a good um, scenario. People don't even know why they're being racist here, but they're being racist. So if it does turn out to be a, an incident that involved anybody of a foreign a foreign national of any any uh, background, this is really going to kick off. And that was like minutes after the incident had taken place and people still weren't aware of what was going on. So it was, you know, I see it in the papers, been re- reviewing them. Oh, totally unpredictable. Nobody could predict what was going to happen here, but the indications have been there for a while but these people 
who were rioting, and I don't want to get too delve too deeply into them and, and have a go, but we're here to protect the women and children of Ireland. So we're gonna shut down the fucking rotunda. Like <laughs> so we're gonna we're going <laughs> we're going to attack people and make all those people feel very unsafe in this city because people aren't doing what we're saying. So that's that's one of the frustrations that you have about it. But the I don't know, Michelle, if you you know you have have any observations on anything that occurred. Yeah, well, I think it's just important for people to know, like, this isn't just some like a freak incident that has happened. This, this, the the hate that happened after the obviously the incident, like that. That's not just something that bubbled over because of this one thing that happened, and that was it. This is something that has been building for months and months and months. This these hate instigators that have been going around that you know we flagged a number of times on this podcast, but have been largely ignored um, as the real threat. To society and when we have been saying for months and years that you know this will lead to violence the fact like you know it might start off online and you know saying things um online it might start off with very small protests in our community but this is where some of this violence has led to it has led to capitalizing on people's fears people's genuine anger of you know chronic underfunding in their own communities and looking for someone to blame and you know and it's not to detract from obviously the conditions of what what happened in Dublin and you know like I just from someone who wasn't in Dublin that day and I was due to be in around that location in Dublin that day um it was interesting to watch you know the com like how it was kind of the ripple effect as it came out of the city and how it was impacting people in other places even in Waterford for example um people were still afraid um people were very worried and like that has like its own effect as well um but then we saw the likes of uh other uh, hate instigators, for example, in Waterford, who tried to organise then the next night, um, in on the Friday, off the back of it, and that was huge in Waterford. I was sick all day on Friday with messages coming from people who were worried about leaving their house, cancelling things in town in Waterford. Um, you know, real, real panic. People trying to alert their own community groups. You had the Pride of the Data coming out, putting out a statement. You know, be care, stay, stay safe tonight. All of this over the fear that what happened in Dublin the night before might actually happen in Waterford the next night. And I, I, I don't know if that was ever if it was really reported in the media, to be honest. But I can't emphasize the how much of Waterford was afraid on Friday night as to what might happen. Um, the businesses were told to close. People were told to move their cars by the guards. All of this kind of stuff. And what it resulted in was about 20, 30 uh, of very uh, familiar hate instigators that have been around Waterford for quite a bit under kind of the Waterford Says No banner, some kind of Irish Freedom Party people, um, you know, all kind of far-right people who were trying to capitalise again off the back of people's fears that they'd just seen the night before. Um. So what happened in Dublin had a ripple effect. It had a huge mm. ripple effect in mm. other communities as well. And that's mm. just what's happened in Waterford. And, you know, the fear and the did did come down to Waterford and people were extremely worried as to that spread of violence because now, you know, it became real. I think it really became real to people to see that this isn't just something that, oh, we've been going on for a while. It's only it's only online on networks. This is spilling out onto our streets. Mm. Claire? Yeah, just how, I mean, we know this because we've talked about it and we watched it happen around the world. It's so frustrating that this is all so predictable, mm -hmm. but that it is these very, you know, coordinated agitators who know exactly what they're doing. They built these networks during COVID. You cannot mobilize that amount of people on a whim. 
you know, on a reactionary basis. That's not what happens. What happens is you build these networks, you build a sense of mistrust, you build the sense of conspiracy, you build um, the anti-government and the racist sentiment and you tap into some of what's already there. But also something like this specifically is that, so there is that, they get people up for a protest. There is such a sense of lawlessness and that's what a lot of people described as particularly around that area, that there was such a sense of lawlessness that, then what you have is a hit the tipping point and then loads of other people get involved that might just be hanging around. Do you know, like there's an energy in the air that young people particularly, and like you said, young people that um, are now the ones actually like the classist language around what happened mm. particularly. Really bad. Absolutely horrific. And so if you bring it right back to absolute basics, what causes this in the first place? Hatred, division, judgment, like it's all, all of that stuff is what actually causes this, right? It's bigotry. And, a lot of people's response to this is do that exact thing to whole communities using really classist language, like using the kind of language that's specifically only used uh, like the community of the North Inner City. And actually, if you have a look at, you know, the charge sheets, for instance, people f- were from all over the place. Some really mm-hmm. affluent. But like, what happens and we saw it during the the refugee, the, the protest last year outside the refugee centres is that you'll have these instigators. They'll turn up, they whip people into a frenzy. And then they head off and they're not the ones that get arrested. It's young men from working class areas that tend to be the ones that get arrested and end up blocked up mm. over these things. And it's not just like we have to be absolutely anti-racist and anti-fascist, but we have to reject classism in that as well. And we have to make sure that we don't replicate the very conditions that are causing this stuff in the first place. And at the complete lack of they're just not, you know, even the government response, not surprising, but. They've been told this for so long. Journalists who have been saying we don't have to worry about the far right, they're not gaining an electoral ground and not taking the time to understand that's not what's actually important here. They will eventually if this continues. But actually, it's not it's not violent until it is. That's the reality. They're not in politics until they are. But there's a, a really frustrating element to this. The classism uh, that I witnessed and left left-wing groups as well as everywhere else, but most frustratingly was articulated um I was going to say surprisingly, but actually not surprisingly, by Paul Reynolds on the RTE News, um, where he said the looters have been in every shop except for um, Eason's, the bookshop and the work clothing shop. Like this, and he wasn't saying other people had said it. He referred to this as, you know, because it was a meme and a joke that was going around that, oh, there was no looting of Eason's because these people don't read books. You know, that that's the, the implication that was going on. Or they're not robbing work shoes and, and work clothing um, because they don't have any jobs. And an RTE presenter felt that that was worth articulating on the six o'clock news, which I think is an absolute disgrace and deserves uh, complaints to go in if possible from people. But this whole thing, there's a, an element. I'm not making the comparison between what happened, in, you know, on October seventh over in, um, in 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 Israel and and what happened the other day. But there's this thing as if the riot appeared out of nowhere and that there were no there was no context to the past about how these communities have been treated. And the only article that I've read by anybody who's trying to even open up that debate is Spice Bag's article. The rest of them are all debates and discussions and opinion pieces about a policing strategy has failed. Well, the policing strategy wouldn't have failed if we didn't have the massive levels of economic inequality and the complete disintegration of working class communities where people in those communities don't feel that this state or anything to do with this state represents them or they have no input or stake in the state. So, you know, there, there's there's nobody really talking about what led up to this. And that's not me justifying and saying, oh, 
the poor, you know, Egypt who who rioted, or, you know, because um, there's di- there's different levels to this, different layers to this, as you said. Like there's there's the stabbing incident and the reaction to that. There's the far right who were organised. Then there's the riots that occurred, and then there's the looting that occurred. And they, if you look at them all distinctly and look at how it emerged, you, you need to. St- take a step back and go back years to see why people are are participating in those actions that they are. And I think it's a failure on all of us, you know, because again, I've seen this, people tweeting, people talking about it and saying, no, there's no justification. There's no, to talk about the conditions and the climate that led to this is not to justify the actions of the people who perpetrated it, right? But if we fail to talk about it, we're doomed to repeat it again because we're failing to understand the conditions that led to this. So it's really important that Spicebag's article is read um, instead of reading stuff like Fiona Sheen's absolute garbage piece in the, the Sunday Independent, which is focused almost entirely on Sinn Féin. Welcome, we welcome Sinn Féin's uh, condemnation of this. And then all the other articles that are about, we need to have a conversation about migration. There was a guy on Joe Duffy today and um, I was driving the car and I was listening in it and Joe Duffy and he was a very articulate former guard or father of a guard, right? And he, he was really bright, really intelligent guy and he was making, well, we have to, and he wasn't being racist in what he was saying, but what he was saying was we need to have a conversation about migration and immigrants and all that sort of stuff, right? Um, and to any, anybody listening in, you you think, oh God, if you were new to it, you go, oh, this must be an issue around migration. This is absolutely not an issue around migration. This is an issue around deprivation um, and the destruction of working class communities so that people don't feel, as I say, that they have a stake in society. So I just, I get get very frustrated by reading all these articles about Helen McEntee's position or Drew Harris's position and all this. And nobody's really talking about the real conditions that led to the, the riots that took place on Thursday. It didn't happen in a vacuum. People aren't born racist. There's conditions that lead up to that racism. And if we don't analyse that first and understand that first, then we're never going to fix a problem like this. Um, I don't know, Claire, Claire Michelle, yeah, if you just want I to jump in. It's also like, the, when you look up, like why was a lot of that violence directed towards the guards? So I had a conversation with somebody who was talking about those, you know, the conversations around policing and around not being prepared and like they, the, the city was basically lost. You know, that's what happened. But I said, right, well, let's say, let's imagine for a minute that there's an increase of policing on the back of this. What happens when there's not a riot? What happens when there's not a, a need for a massive amount of guards? Where do those guards go? What communities is it that are over policed? And what does that contribute to? So it's again, it's back to this like just very short term thinking, reactionary thinking, no critical analysis of why. And again, there's very different reasons why a lot of people turned up to that the other night. Mm. Some of them are absolutely rooted in, you know, far right fascism. Like that's why some of them turned up. They knew exactly what they were doing, what they were contributing to, what they're instigating. Then there was people who turned up, you know. Maybe a step down the ladder, it's racism. It's an excuse to cause trouble. And then there's people who literally rocked up as it was happening and got whipped up in it. But I think that, I don't think this government certainly is ever going to look at those kind of things. I don't think, like there's now talk as well around facial recognition. So uh, this is this is what gets frustrating sometimes as well around, we have conspiracy that drives a lot of the stuff within the far right, but there's always threads of truth. And that's how they get people. So obviously there's massive issues with facial recognition technology. There's massive issues with, you know, with hate speech legislation. So which is really 
you know, people, a lot of people are very torn on. It's how can these things be exploited by a neoliberal capitalist government to shut down dissent? And that's where I think we should be really focusing on our analysis. Michelle. And I think I think what um, Spice Bag was saying in his article as well really highlights like the alienation that people are feeling like, you know, feeling that the city isn't theirs anymore, feeling like, you know, as you say, like a lot of the anger is directed towards guards as well. But the guards only respond. They don't prevent, you know, the, the, what the conditions that people are experiencing are down to failure of, you know, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil policy. It's a fail of neoliberal, neoliberalism. And that is complete alienation of your like a feeling of who you are in the city and like it's just it's not something like and actually interesting enough when we were talking about you know the classism element of element of it um i read um a post that a, a staff member of shout out which is an lgbt organization and um, put up and they were um doing um a presentation in oberstown which is the detention center for children um for under 18 year olds and uh they were doing the th- doing their presentation and it was about, you know, being more inclusive and all that. And they said, yeah, no problem. We won't be homophobic if you stop calling us scumbags. And it's that whole thing of like, you know, we can talk about being inclusive of identities and all of that. But if we're disrespecting the working class, you know, that's there's a division in that as well. And I think people need to be more aware of that when we're talking about liberal politics around, you know, you might not be homophobic, might not be this, but are you putting jokes about uh, classist jokes in the group chat? Um, and maybe you need to have a sit down and consider what, that actually means in the grand scheme of this but yeah and just to touch on what Claire was saying there as well like the minute I saw that the PSNI had approved water cannons to come down to Dublin <laughs> I was like oh can't wait for that to be used against me next time do you know what I mean like it's not like all of this is all this oh the style of over policing and the the facial recognition technology all this that's that, that that's going to be used against the working class yeah. You know, that 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 is just uh, neoliberal politics just trying to push everything through right now while there's an, um, a crisis um, under the guise of crisis. This has been pushed back. I've seen the Green Party have now apparently bowed to the pressure and have allowed uh, the facial recognition technology uh, peace discussion to progress, whereas before they had stuck the, the heel in. But apparently <laughs> um mm. but you know this is really really concerning because this facial recognition te- technology is owner only ever really used against uh the working class like let's be real and um, there's mm. we're over policed um and under resourced and i think that's something that we need to consider when it comes to these laws what people might be like obviously in a moment right now but we cannot make policy based on one incident that is not how you know we need to needs to be a wider conversation about this and it's already been rejected that facial recognition technology is like racialized for a start um and extremely problematic for our privacy and our civil liberties and if the far right are the only one talking about free speech and civil liberties and all of that then we're leaving a gap where we need to also be talking about that like the irish council of civil liberties do come out quite strong on a lot of this but the left cannot leave a gap in this conversation for the far right to fill because it is a valid concern that we're being over policed and with water cannons facial recognition technology coming in and i'm very very concerned about it because it's the left and trade unionists who will be overpleased in that and have been in the past, as people are aware of, like <laughs> the war protests that you know mm. all of that. So you know, uh, mm. there's precedent there. Yeah. What What are the other things uh, 
was, you know, the guards weren't ready for this and nobody could predict it and the far right and all that. And then they, I obviously, I was instinctively reminded of, uh, and I went through Twitter to find it, but the video of the Gardaí bringing the far right into the library there in Swords, my own sm- local town, like where they wanted to go in and abuse the, the workers uh, in libraries, which has been happening in Cork and all over the country. But like, the guards did a job that that day to to protect the far right to bring them in to do the dirty business of abusing workers or you know work public sector workers library workers they so they they're well aware of these people and it sort of backfired for them last Thursday because yes they probably did underestimate where this was all going um and part of me was a bit you know well surely they they could call on their mates who they've helped into the libraries to pull to call this whole thing off. But obviously things escalate and get out of uh, control. Claire, do you want in on something there? I suppose the only thing that I do want to add to this is that ever since Thursday, like I, and I think a lot of people that were there, I don't think I took a, a full breath until I heard that the little girl was you know, in critical condition, had survived, was gone into an operation, that there was a, that there was any hope for her, basically. And I swear to God, it was like being back in COVID with the amount of messages going around saying, or the Facebook posts saying that she had died. And it's like, how have people not learned not to share that stuff until they see it from a trusted news source? And now we talk about that a lot on here, like what are trusted news sources? We challenge mainstream news sources sometimes, but it's just the critical thinking involved in like sharing highly emotional uh, news that some of it and what I've seen over the past couple of days is very clearly being created to actually stoke this fear. People are creating fake messages saying that they're from the family and that actually the little girl has passed and get out and protest on the streets. They like they could not be manipulating people's fear. And I know myself, my mom who was there as well, you know, in the middle of it, um, rings me upset a couple of times a day. I'm after hearing this, do you know if it's true? And it's like, we, we're, imagine what the family are like. Imagine what mm. the people that know that family are like. Like, it, they're just, so, it's just, it's, again, it's just sharing this highly emotional, but also politically charged because it's actually been used for this really bad face, fake political means because it's been used by people who want to cause another, another version of Friday night, basically. Um, yeah, and it's just that misinformation. So I'd like to think nobody listened to this would, but I know people can kind of share <laughs> with instinct. But Jesus, if 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 you see anything like that, don't share it unless you know for a fact it's true. Because I can tell you, every time I get a message like that, I just a sense of panic washes over me. And then I go on to all the news stations, don't see anything. Tell myself I'll wait an hour to see if Toronto something comes up. Yeah. But it doesn't. And it just must have people in absolute bits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I think I think there's probably a wider piece there as well. Like, you know, there was a huge amount of information going around in group chats that night. There was a huge amount of information. Like people, there is like that element of like that critical media skills. You know, people sharing things that they don't realize are from a far right source, you know, from, you know, a hateful source and then accidentally falling upon a page with loads of other hateful things on it. Um, I think it's just a wider piece around obviously just information but like that kind of critical media skills and we have spoken about it here before but like being mindful of sources being mindful of what you're sharing as you say like I even got caught up on it one time like you know that there was the pictures going around like the army tanks and I was like surely it's not army mm. tanks and then of course the Irish Defence Force had to literally put out a thing saying like we're not we're literally not on the street with tanks so I don't know what you're on about but the other piece as well is and I think 
you know, there was a huge amount of people, you know, in group chats, sharing, watching lots of videos, taking in a huge amount of content around all of this. And obviously that's great for big tech. I'm sure they loved all of that, that click, all that click and algorithms that they were promoting. But the other piece was a lot of people were feeling very powerless in, in a lot of that. And we're feeling like, oh, the only thing I can do is share this and tell my friends. But for all of those people have, who have now been engaged in this conversation about the far right and potentially for the first time talking about like the rise of hate and feeling fear and feeling powerless because of the fear, because they haven't been involved in organizing before this. They haven't been involved in conversations about the rise of hate in our communities and how to tackle it and actually genuinely being panicked. I received a number of messages from people in a state of panic what are we going to do? This is the end, like feels very end of the worldy with everything going on as well with Palestine and just a lot of, a lot of crisis uh, happening at the one time. And I think it really just goes back to the whole thing of how we organize in our communities. Like we need to give people solutions to what, like how do we empower people now to take the next steps in this moment? Now that they have realized, okay, well, you know, it has spilled out onto the streets and now I see it. And now I believe that, you know, this is a problem that we need to tackle. And I believe, you know, all of that. And it's about talking about how we, do, how do we do that? And it was great to see, for example, ICTU call the solidarity protest uh, for workers um, on Monday and brilliant turnout there as well. There was a small uh, rally as well in Waterford too. Um, but there's that wider piece of like, not just responding to a moment. How do we long-term build in our communities? And we have to be involved in organizations to do that in our trade unions, in our tenants unions, in our community groups. It is vitally important that we are active in them because that's how community building happens. And that's how we protect our communities from things like this happening, but also having the support systems there in place when the things do happen, that we can, you know, collectively organize, collectively support each other and build strong and welcoming communities together and I think that's a really important takeaway from all of this that there are groups there um, and that people need to be getting involved at that point because it's all well and good sharing stuff in a group chat and having an opinion about something online but unless you're actively hands-on organizing your community you know if that's not you need to do that long-term building is what I'm saying yeah um, agreed. Um, I might move on in terms of stories, if that's all right with people. Um, I was thinking of raising the uh, Daniel Murray had a piece in the Sunday Business Post, well, the Business Post now, um, plans to replace triple lock spark wider debate on Ireland's neutrality. Uh, and I know it's something that we've discussed before and I put it into the, our, our little group there and we we said we'd raise this as an issue. But it turns out, it, well, not that it turns out we know this, but it turned into a uh, a big war of words in the doll the other day, uh, where Pierce Doherty and Michal Martin were were screaming at each other across the the floor. Um, but the reasoning for it is that Michal Martin and Fianna Fáil have have reversed the position. I think it was in the program for government, or else in their manifesto before the last election that they would protect the triple lock, and now they've completely reversed that position and said that they're going to drop it. What what struck me from the article there and what what was said in the doll how is how Michal Martin um decided to defend the the shift in position and this is just quality in terms of lunatic responses he says to Pierce Dyer you seem to have a view that Russia should dictate our foreign policy I believe that's there's something something morally wrong with the fact that an authoritarian and aggressive neo-imperialist power has a de facto veto on elements of how we as an independent republic react to any given situation they talk about using Russophobia as a way to abandon a decade old a state you know the, 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 the period of time that we've had this state of neutrality 
to to use that current Russophobia as a way to undermine our neutrality and the triple lock system. Um, to me, is sickening to be honest, because it's it's not him or his kids that are going to be lost in wars when they go over to to fight in these pointless wars. But it'll be working class people again. Claire, you wanted in. The irony in that for me, the thing that jumps out most is that actually it's America that is using their veto right now about Gaza. And it's like he's actually distracting. Not only is he creating a situation that is non-existent, he's actually ignoring the actual issues there in yeah. and in, in America using their veto. And it's like it, it just shows how they use it for their own gain and their own agenda all the time. And it's just absolutely sick and there's no morals there. Yeah, just in case people aren't aware, like the... The triple lock involves the UN um, Security Council uh, enabling us to send. So as the past, they rocked us. And, but the, the, the uh, currently, you know, they've got permanent members of the UN Security Council. If they refuse to to back something, they have a veto on it. Then the Ireland can't send anybody, any troops um, to these peacekeeping missions. So by saying Ru- Russia, they are deliberately misrepresenting what's going on over in Gaza, um, where we're seeing a genocide, war crimes, uh, crimes against humanity, all sorts of things. But to, for Michal Martin to use that situation where it's the United States of America that is blocking um, us from sending peace troops or any of that sort of stuff, and then say, oh, well, I don't think Sinn Féin seem to think that Russia should have a veto. That's not the scenario, the situation we're in. And it's disgusting to see something like that uh, being and portrayed. Again, again, it's an example of where the government wanted to do something, had a policy on the shelf and just waited for an opportune emotional moment for it to be acted on. This is, again, creating a policy around an incident. But this policy is something that Michal Martin has been trying to pursue since he's decided he probably wants a job in the EU or whatever he's doing. Um, to He had been talking about this. That's why the, uh, the consultation forums were started on neutrality. We all knew that the whole basis of that, it was set up a lineup of people who are anti-neutrality. The whole thing was designed to have a recommendation at the end of it that was to abolish the triple lock system. Um, And we knew it. We saw it coming. So it sat there for a little while. I would let calm down, you know, a couple of protests there. And then we'll wait for an opportune moment in the same way that they've waited for an opportune moment with the facial recognition technology again uh, to whip this out and uh, undermine our neutrality. And this is, you know, this this unlocking this now will really uh, have a massive impact. You know, it'll, it'll allow Irish troops to be to fight in any wars abroad that they want. And it's bizarre to see the actual. Uh, I think Matt McCarthy from Sinn Fein was sharing it around the statement of Michal Martin ten years ago in two thousand and thirteen, actively slating Fianna Gael for trying mm. to abolish the triple lock 10 years ago. And now here we are, he's trying to lead lead this now to, I, I don't know. Um, but alongside that, and I think it's important to note uh, when we're talking about neutrality, is what's happening in Shannon Airport at the moment as well. And it was highlighted by Dublin for Gaza, um, who are a, a kind of a direct action group that have popped up um, in uh, in in Dublin in the last uh, month or so um, and they were kind of highlighting the surge in munitions exam- exemptions that have been granted by the Department of Tra- Transport so essentially the Department of Transport has been signing off uh, saying oh yeah you can get weapons through at, at the moment and usually it'd be only the a couple of uh, exemptions that would be granted um, over the last number of years and suddenly there's a huge surge just at the same time that there's a genocide being committed um, 
allowing Ireland essentially to be a transit point for weapons that could lead to be used in genocide and uh, other wars that are happening. And it's completely undermining our neutrality, completely undermining our neutrality. Like the fact that this is even allowed to happen in the first place is bizarre. And I don't know how um, this has gone unchecked for so long in that way, but I think it needs to be talked about more because it's actually uh, extremely concerning to see what's, ha- what's happening. And like when, it, when you... You know, we're hearing reports of American troops on the ground, American weapons on the ground, British uh, troops on the ground in Palestine. And, you know, we talk, you know, this the story of this week when it comes to Palestine is like, oh, yes, we're going to have a four day ceasefire, a four day (laughs) ceasefire where we're going to have a slight little pause and then we're going to continue to try and eradicate uh, the people in Gaza. Like that's that's what was said, and everyone was like, "Oh my god, great news, great pure clap, clap." No, absolutely not. We're still he- we were here. We've been hearing of people still being shot. There was a doctor shot and killed during this four day pause. They were shooting at people who were coming from hospitals mm-hmm. and tra- people trying to return home to see if their house is still there to gather belongings. Uh, they still continued. The, the, the there was no such thing as a ceasefire, but mm. it allowed for good pure for for Israel for a little while, um, and then people just been like, ah, oh, yes, of course, that's fine. Like we're just totally going to accept that four day ceasefire is a normal thing to say and be happy with. Mm. Like, what are we even talking about here? Like, we've just he, they've just said they're going to bomb Gaza for the next two months off the back of this. Yeah, like what's going to be left to Gaza? Absolutely nothing. I I was looking at if they. If I was I saw a graph um earlier on during the week, and if they bomb Gaza in the way that they have in the last number of weeks at the same rate and have the same results of destruction, in the next thirty five days there's going to be no homes left in Gaza. Incredible! Like that is scary. Mm. And and there's a graphic that's just gone up there today, a couple of hours ago, uh, about um the number of journalists that have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. There's 67 journalists that have been shot and killed. And obviously there's people on Twitter, um, and I'd say justifiably so, making the point that journalists are being targeted. Like their homes are being um targeted. Like we talk about Israel, you know, one of the um probably up there with the United States in terms of the uh, capabilities, military capabilities that they have and targeted missiles and all the rest of it, they don't accidentally hit your house. They know exactly what they're doing when they hit a journalist's house. They're aiming for that journalist and his family. Um, And we obviously have seen journalists who've lost their families and live recording, uh, live broadcasting when they've been told that they've lost their family members and stuff over there. Um, But I also saw... Uh, a comment on Twitter, um, or it was in an article actually, I think, that there's been more UN staff killed than Hamas senior leaders. Like, more UN, United Nations staff killed in Gaza than Hamas, senior Hamas members uh, um, since October 7th. And yet, still, the world is looking on and going, hmm, let's have a small humanitarian pause. 5,000 dead children small humanitarian pause for a couple of days and meanwhile as you say if you go up north and try and get back to your home or pick up any of your belongings you can be shot dead and again what's happening to these people and this is what happens when human beings are given impunity so Israel has been given impunity by the United States Britain the EU and others and they are using that to the best of their ability which is to genocide a people in 
Palestine. That's what's going on. Because, as we all know, there's been hundreds of people killed as well in the West Bank where there is no Hamas. So it's nothing to do with Hamas. This is about killing people who are Palestinian. Sorry, go on. Absolutely. And something else that is in, uh, I found interesting during the week was um, we all know that obviously a lot of the charities and aids workers can't uh, get in or out. No one coming out um, of Gaza. So, you know, it's an open air prison as it has been for the last number of years. Um, but at, particularly at the moment, people can't come in and out. And, you know, obviously we've been talking about the difficulties of getting aid in and, you know, there's... Uh, and there's lots of people raising money for charities, but unfortunately, a lot of those charities physically cannot get in at the moment. So I had a, I had a friend in Gaza, so I was uh, talking to him and I was like trying to get some money over to him because all the food prices are going up there now and just trying to see if we can help any displaced people there. And my the the transfer from AIB was blocked. And Ooh. where have we seen this before? Only with Cuba. Cuba. So AIB seemed to be uh, and I've, I'm following up the case of the complaint and all of that, but they seem to be applying sanctions to block bank transfers to Palestine. Um, so that's an application of, you know, US laws and US sanctions that is actually illegal to do in Ireland in the EU. If you just like take US sanctions and apply them to other countries just because US told you and bu- probably bullied those banks into doing that. Um, so that's worrying because Cuba have have the same restrictions on banking as well where uh, some people might be familiar with the uh, one cent for Cuba campaign which was a campaign where it encouraged people once a month to send one cent to Cuba or Cuba in the name or to a Cuba bank um, from AIB from your bank and see if it's rejected and when it is rejected because it, it is rejected um, you then put in a complaint and try to snowball uh, the banks with loads of paperwork and sh- highlighting the fact that this is actually one illegal uh, under uh, Irish and EU law to apply US sanctions in just unilaterally but because all of the systems are so integrated all the banking systems are so integrated with the US they have just been applying these sanctions as if they're global sanctions um, not just US sanctions, but global. And now it seems it's happening with Palestine. Um, mm. Like I will confirm it once I get a proper thing. But the person on the phone said, yes, it's because of the sanctions. The person on Twitter in a public forum said, no, I don't know what you're talking about. Send us a complaint. Mm. So uh, watch this space. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for it. We're going to wrap up with a couple of minutes, actually, unless you have a, a couple of other stories. But I wanted to just give the positive story, obviously, I know people have probably heard it or seen it on the news, um, but the um, young Irish girl Emily Hand was released um, as a hostage from um, from from where she was being held captive. Um, there is a little bit of trouble about that, which we might have a quick discussion about. But according to her father, she's um, she's in good health, good spirits. Um, she said she's lost a little bit of weight, but other than that, she's doing well. Um, the story I wanted to just quickly get on to in relation to that, so if you bear with me a second, that the Israelis, this is, <laughs> just quite can't believe it, Israel's summon, uh, summoning of the Irish ambassador, ambassador is a bit of an overreaction, according to Simon Harris. And for anyone that hasn't heard it, this is only a story that's broken today, I believe, um, that because of Leo Radker tweeting that an innocent child who was lost has now been found after Hamas released nine-year-old um, Irish-Israeli hostage Emily Hand, because of that tweet saying she was lost but now found, the Irish ambassador has been summoned. Like, that's an incredible thing to do that Israel feels it should summon an Irish ambassador. Distraction. Distraction but, politics. D- distraction politics partly, but and yes, it is. But what's really beyond 
mental on that is that a tweet can get an ambassador summoned, but the genocide mm. and the murder of 5,000 children and they have no guilt for that. Well, Israel are playing the PR game. So, of course, social media is going to matter to them. You know, it's all this them having a hoo-ha over this tweet now is complete distraction. A distraction for us not to, not to talk about the thousands of children who are st- who Palestinian children that are still in Israeli prison and mm. still are hostage of hostages of Israel. You know, it's, it's just mad how they can create so much media mm. over a tweet and the response in a tweet. And as mm. you say, then actually calling out like diplomatic to uh, stuff like that. But it, it like just the compare. Oh, yeah, I just. <laughs> and, 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 as you say, like there's prisoners who've just been released uh, from Israeli prisons, prisoners who are like 17 years of age, but they've been in prison for four or five years. And you're like, what? Children. <laughs> the, they've had children they... in there for years. Yeah. And, uh, they, in I saw solitary it. confinement, like in terrible conditions, terrible treatment. Like it's shocking to think of how that's going to impact their lives it's barbaric and again it's crimes against humanity like these there's, 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 I don't know if you saw it on Twitter but like a Israeli soldier arresting or, or holding a two year old a two year old Palestinian child at gunpoint like this state is just an absolute horrific state and but like I just found it so infuriating but funny to one degree that all that stuff is happening but this state is so upset about a tweet but as you say it is a distraction so they're, they're good about it. I don't know if you have any other stories you wanted to get into there Michelle? Yeah well just briefly because it, it kind of almost ties into our some of the conversation we were having earlier about like who owns the city and who owns Dublin and you know people feeling alienated from their own city Um, at the same time the stories this week are we've broken the homeless records again this week well into over 13,000 um, and at the same time I read an article actually in my local paper about how Dublin based Airbnb unit now accounts for 50% of firms global revenues in 2022 global revenues 50% of the global revenues is coming oh, out of Dublin Yeah, and we're yeah. talking about who owns the city of course people feel alienated it's mm. vulture funds and airbnb who own the city how are how are people who've grown up there all their all their lives supposed to feel like they have any control in a city that's run by vultures and then to tie into that because it's not just a dublin thing uh the ditch did a story today as well where it, it talks about how all the mayo county council executives one in five of them have uh one in five um are landlords one in five of the senior staff let properties out um, and some of them even are co-directors of like council projects so all of this stuff like it's like who actually you know implements these policies who controls our cities our communities and you know it all goes back to capitalism maybe it's all talking about uh, the big vultures the big uh, executives who do have all the money and all of the power and all of the control when it comes to actually uh, how our communities are run and I just think it ties into what we were saying earlier Um but yeah, and then maybe on a more positive note. Just, just, just before we move on from the Airbnb one, because that's actually in the business post as well. Um, and I'll just touch on it very briefly because you're absolutely right. The Airbnb's Irish arm reports a 48% rise in revenues, right? But you now they are funneling most of their European uh, basis through Dublin, which is the headquarters of Airbnb in, in Europe. But um, in terms of drilling into it, the Irish arm generated revenues of 4.2 billion 
last year, 4.2 billion. That's about half of what we spend on our education budget alone, right? Um, up 48% from 2.8 billion the year before, but they paid a uh, corporation tax of 15.6 million. I don't know when you're putting those numbers out there, it's very dif- difficult to get your head around how much corporation tax they're paying, but 15.6 million equals 0.3 Seven percent of the four point two billion, so not not even half a percent is uh, of the revenue. Now I understand that that's not of profits, but um, but the, the of of the actual revenue that they've made. So, but zero point three one third of a percent is what they're paying in terms of the corporation tax in Ireland. And I saw that when I saw that article, I immediately thought of the riots that were happening in Dublin and saying who who owns the city and all the rest. Of it. So I was on the same wavelength as you when I was reading it. I wasn't sure whether to cover it, but the point is, this state, this city is owned by vulture funds by Airbnb and the very people who are on the streets who are being slagged off in a classist way are the very people who cannot get a home because Airbnb are occupying all that space uh, and many of them are probably living in hotels rather than in houses because Airbnb is now doing that service so sorry you've one more um, story yeah I can cover another one Um, well I was trying to end on a good news uh, story and a good news of collective power because that's what we're trying to get out of this but it was just I was reading during the week that um, Unite had um, won a 12.7% pay uh, increase for their mechanical workers so essentially they'd gone to the labour court uh, the constru- that they're uh, in the construction branch and they had like rejected the labour court recommendation and then essentially from what I can gather called it like a a strike amongst all of their members across workplaces like can't call it a general strike but <laughs> potentially it was um all at the same time happening in different employers um and they won a 12.7 percent uh increase which is uh great news um and just wanted to finish on a good news story today um of how we can organize collectively in our workplaces and our communities and win yeah and i'll finish on one semi-positive story but uh, you might have heard today that Paul Lynch won the Booker Prize for his, his uh, dystopian novel, uh, what is it called? Prophet Song. Um, and the reason I raised this is because of a message I was sent from a few friends of mine who were into reading. Um, and they, uh, the point of the book is, is this, this on a dark, wet evening in Dublin, scientist and mother of four Eilish Stack answers her front door to find the GNSB, didn't know what that was, on her step. Two officers from Ireland's newly formed secret police are here to interrogate her husband, a trade unionist. <laughs> so this dystopian novel, I haven't read it yet. I've died to read it now, but I've, I've had multiple people send it to me, send me links to it saying, this must be about you in the future. So I'm going to have to have a look at it, but it might be um, one for us to have a read and uh, don't know if it's a positive story, but it's something to watch out for. Um, if you've no other stories, I'll, I'll wrap up on that. This has been the week of work. I've been your host, David Gibney. I want to thank my t- two co-hosts, Michelle Byrne and Claire O'Connor. Uh, again, just a plug of the Left Block project. If you want to support us, please do so at patreon.com forward slash leftblock uh, or go to leftblock.ie. There's actually quite a good article on uh, that we've uploaded today on that about uh, a number of Spanish trade unionists um, who are facing into 25 years in prison collectively and €150,000 fines for protesting against a bakery who was um, engaging in sexual harassment of one of the employees. Uh, we met with those workers a couple of weeks ago to discuss what, what had happened and we've got a recording on that so we're going to put that into one of our podcasts in, in very near future a good one to listen to to mark the international day against violence against women as well yes yes so um, we'll see you all next week